Primary Care Knowledge Boost, an approach to assessing peripheral paresthesia. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we have Dr Matt Jones back with us. Yes, he did a wonderful episode on headaches for us previously, which has proved to be very popular. Yeah, and it's absolutely amazing. (laughs) Um, This time we're speaking to him about altered sensation as a symptom. We take a case-based approach and they're all made up cases um, and we try to understand how to think about the different causes of these types of symptoms. Um, We talk about his systematic approach and thinking when faced with patients such as these, um, some specific presentations of altered peripheral sensation um, and then talk about when he would be worried about these patients. We hope you enjoy and we'll be back at the end to share our learning points. So as always, would you like to introduce yourself, um, Matt, to the listeners? We know you did a fabulous headache episode before, but just for people who maybe haven't heard that one. Yep, no problem. So uh, my name is Matt Jones. I'm a consultant neurologist and I work at the Manchester Centre for Clinical Neurosciences that's based at Salford Royal uh, in Greater Manchester. Fabulous. So today we thought we'd ask you about assessing patients with all sorts of tingly and funny sensations in their limbs. Um, But first we thought we should maybe take a look at what we mean by this. Um, So can you talk us through what types of altered sensation that we might encounter? Yeah, sure. I think um, it's it's a really common sort of presenting complaint and it's potentially a really tricky thing to pin down because there's so many different sort of possibilities with altered sensations. So I, I think about three broad elements, I guess. Um, firstly, um, in a sort of slightly new anatomical way, I, I sort of think about, well, what bits of the nervous system do what? So, so what are the important sensory modalities? Secondly, I think about, well, about the pattern of someone's sensory symptoms. So topographically, which bits of the body is affected by it? And then thirdly, I think about, you know, the pattern of their symptom onset, how quickly, how slowly, coming and going, etc. And then that's not unique to sensation. That's the same for any neurological presenting complaint. Um, but those would be the sort of broad areas I think about. So, so taking them in order. So, so the first one, the different sensory modalities, there are lots of different sensory modalities, but only a few, I think, are truly clinically relevant for the vast majority of day-to-day practice. So, so the first is sort of classic I think tingling and numbness, which really refers to alterations in pain and temperature sensation. Um, so, so this is what people feel through sensors in their skin, essentially, very superficially detected. And then it's carried in small fibres, unmyelinated fibres, up through the nerves into the spinal cord. In the spinal cord, it goes up in the spinothalamic tracts to the brain and then onwards to the parietal lobe. And that's where you get a sort of conscious awareness of the the altered sensation. And that's um, testable using a pin. So that's why we use pinprick, because pinprick is a way of activating the pain fibre system. Yep. Um, and, and I think when most people can, you know, talk about numbness and tingling, that's really what they're referring to, sort of problems with those sort of sensations. Um, the second sensation, which people are less sort of familiar with, but actually I think in practice turns out to be probably in some ways more important, are the vibration and joint position sensations and these don't necessarily produce much in the way of conscious awareness of numbness or tingling but what they produce are problems with balance because if you want to keep yourself upright you need information going into your cerebellum from your eyes from your middle ear and from your joints particularly the joints in your feet and if you lose any one of those you're going to be off balance and if you lose a couple of them you're going to be really in trouble and these sensations are carried from deep structures so joints and tendons and they're carried in large myelinated fibres, very fast conducting fibres. So this information gets to the central nervous system very quickly, goes up in the posterior columns all the way to the brainstem, doesn't cross over at any point in the spinal cord. And then most of this information ends up in the cerebellum, a relatively small amount reaches your conscious awareness. Um, and we test this using a couple of different things. So the wiggly toe test, you know, the toe going up and toe going down, which actually I'm not a big fan of. You have to lose a lot of joint position sensation before that test becomes positive. But what I am a fan of is the, the 128 hertz tuning fork because that's a really easy piece of kit to use and it's incredibly sensitive. So for instance, because the vibration is carried up the spinal cord, mostly in posterior columns, but a few other tracks as well, it's really difficult to have a damaged spinal cord and intact joint position, uh, so a vibration sense. 
So if you've got someone you're worried about, their spine, you're worried about their spinal cord because of the symptoms that they describe. If they can perceive the vibrating tuning fork on their big toe and they can close their eyes and they can tell when you've stopped it, they probably don't have a significant spinal cord problem. Wow. It's a really good test and it's undervalued and underused. That's really high yield. <laughs> it is high yield. It is yeah. high yield. So obviously there are some patients with certain sensory problems that won't work and we'll come on to those, I guess, later. But it is a really good screening test. So the third thing, third modality is light touch, another one that everyone knows about. It's incredibly non-specific. It's not carried by a specific fibre type in the peripheries, unlike the other two we've talked about. It's not carried by specific tract systems in the spinal cord, so really non-specific there as well. It's incredibly subjective, what people describe as light touch. You know, the difference between pain, light touch, light, light touch and tickle, lots of different problems with it. So for this reason, you know, you don't see many neurologists using cotton wool. Or, or their fingers, you know, to test light touch on a patient, they'll, they'll usually use a tuning fork and a pin because those are the, the high-value modalities to check. And then I guess last of all is, is pain itself, and, and, and that's the one to be a little bit careful of because pain, particularly pain of a diffuse nature, is probably unlikely to be primarily neurological in nature. Mm-hmm. Pain of a focal nature with a neuropathic feel to it with associated neurological symptoms, sure, it could be. A specific nerve or something like that's been damaged but just in general you know the presence of pain doesn't automatically mean a significant neurological problem okay so those are those sensory modalities that i think about so that, that, that that's what could be going wrong here when the patient's coming in the second thing that i'm interested in having established you know what roughly type of sensory problem it is is, is the distribution of it and, and these are just once again it's just patterns all of sensory assessment is pattern recognition like like a lot of neurology to be honest with you so for instance if someone's got a single extremity sensory problem that that's highly likely to be a peripheral nerve problem either a peripheral nerve itself one nerve compressed or something or a nerve root it's unlikely to be a central nervous system problem because it's quite damaged to it's quite difficult to focally damage the central nervous system in a way that only one limb is affected It can happen, it's just not very likely compared to the peripheral problems, which are common and typically affect just one limb. Next pattern that's a good one is, you know, when both lower limbs are affected by sensory disturbance, particularly sort of starting in the feet, a lot of people automatically equate that to peripheral neuropathy. See that written in a lot of notes, you know, patient has numbness in the feet and then automatically they start talking about peripheral neuropathy. But in fact, you know, numbness in both feet could be peripheral neuropathy, but could also be spinal cord dysfunction. And in fact, you know, forelimb sensory dysfunction affecting sort of feet and hands that so called so-called glove and stocking in many people's minds automatically equates to peripheral neuropathy but it could just as easily be spinal cord dysfunction yeah and that pattern you just need to bear in mind that it could be either of those two it's very unlikely for instance to be a brain problem though causing bilateral lower limb or forelimb sensory disturbance um, next pattern that you see a lot of is bilateral hands, bilateral upper limb symptoms. And, and, and that's usually one of two things. It's usually either, you know, bilateral compressive nerve problems, you know, carpal tunnel on both sides is very common. Ulnar nerves on both sides is very common. Or potentially a problem with the neck with the nerve roots and the spinal cord, and particularly the nerve roots going down into the arms. I think that, you know, you get variations on these patterns. So you can have bilateral limb involvement, either both legs or all four limbs and, and when it's symmetrical you know you do automatically think well it could be peripheral neuropathy it could be cord um, but it's it, what, what's interesting to note is, is when it's asymmetrical um, but bilateral and that usually means it's a disease process that has to be picking off sort of individual bits of the system so, so nerve roots typically give rise to this asymmetrical but bilateral pattern or very rarely multiple peripheral nerves but there aren't that many conditions that pick off asymmetrically multiple peripheral nerves so an example just so i can sort of think of that in my head right (laughs) sorry um so an example of where it'll be bilateral but asymmetrical could be so bilateral as in both both arms but there's just slightly different parts of the arms on each side yeah so let's for instance take somebody who's got you know multi-level degenerative disc disease in the neck yeah. So they might be getting a sort of diffuse burning sensation over the shoulder area of one arm reflecting sort of, you know, sort of C5 problem. They might be getting intermittent tingling and clumsiness of the hand on the other side reflecting a disc lower down. Okay. That's sort of C8T1. That would be very typical. More commonly actually in the, in, in, the, in the legs. 
So someone's got burning and numbing, burning and, and, and numbness sort of going down into one shin and the top of the foot, a sort of, you know, L5 type problem. And then on the other side, perhaps it's, you know, a little bit more medially or a bit higher up. And that's because they've got a disc further up, but, but, but multiple discs at different levels causing problems. And, and that's quite typical of sort of polyradiculopathy, which is, so I suppose, what you'd refer to it as, when more than one nerve root's been affected at a time. And the longer someone's had spondylosis in either the lumbar or the cervical region, the more likely they are to get multiple disc levels sort of causing mischief. A final a useful pattern, I think, to think of is the, the, the person who comes with a, a hemisensory loss. So one side of the body, right versus left, has gone numb or tingly. And, and that is in principle, you know, a brain problem. There are lesions of the brain that can do that, but not very many. It is almost always, in fact, a presentation of functional neurological disorder mm. when you see a hemisensory, particularly a midline respecting hemisensory syndrome, completely numb down one side. Um, and that's extremely common. It's one of the commonest functional presentations that we see in the clinic, actually. Right. So if you look at the, um, there's a really great website called neurosymptoms.org, which they run out of Edinburgh, where they've got a big group who deal with FND. And in fact, the front page of that website for many years is just a, a, a line drawing of someone who's coloured in what their symptoms look like. And it's just they've coloured in one half of their body in green because it's just a complete hemisensory syndrome mm. as a sort of functional presentation. Gosh, as opposed to weakness, a hemiplegia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so as a, very much as opposed to weakness, if you examine the patient with that functional hemisensory loss, they'll, always, they'll often typically give you that sort of classical give way weakness on one side, which can be encouraged back to full power, or they'll have positive signs such as Hoover's sign. So we're not, I'm not going to go, I don't think we'll talk a lot about the potential sort of functional presentations of, of, of sensory symptoms, because I would be here, we'd take over the whole podcast on, <laughs> on sense. I think it's a different, it's a whole section, isn't yeah. it? So FND is a big area mm-hmm. and sensory is just one tiny bit of it. That's a, that's a good tip there, the website. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Neurosymptoms.org. It's good for patients and good for healthcare professionals. It's equally good, actually. And then you had, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the time aspect of your... Yeah, so, so I mean, the same with anyone presenting with any neurological symptoms. What's going to be really important is, you know, how they've come on, how they've changed over time. The sort of patterns that we maybe worry a bit more about are acute onset and worsening. That's, you know, almost never good, is it? Um, but particularly acute onset worsening with loss of function associated with it. That's pretty concerning but so is a gradual onset and progressive sort of march of symptoms with associated loss of function i think that's with associated loss of function is, is, is really important that they're, they're both worrying and compare and contrast that to sort of intermittent relatively variable symptoms with periods of normality in between where someone is able to feel everything normally and do everything normally that makes me less worried about a significant neurological disease particularly if the intermittent spells last minutes hours or even just a day at a time i might be a little bit more worried about someone who's having a you know weeks of sensory disturbance potentially with altered function and then going back to normal and then later having another spell like that because that is broadly the pattern you can see in in things like ms um but once again uh, it's unusual that it's a purely sensory problem for, for, for patients with ms it's certainly possible it's just a little bit unusual I think at this point I was going to ask you something, but just before I do, um, do you think it would be worthwhile asking you what the difference between myelopathy and radiculopathy is? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So I've probably already broken a number of cardinal rules by sort of cracking on with the neurological terminology. Um, but, but yeah, so, 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 so myelopathy just means bad spinal cord. And radiculopathy means bad nerve roots. <laughs> and... Often what actually happens is that both are bad and then the neurologist will, will relish in writing myeloradiculopathy, you know, in their clinic letter. Um, but, but it just means, yeah, b- bad root or bad cord in the same way, you know, myopathy is bad muscle and neuropathy is bad nerve and encephalopathy is bad brain. Excellent. <laughs> Perfect. So um, when you assess someone referred to you with tingly limbs or altered sensation or some of the things that you've described what approach do you take i think you've, you've pretty much answered it yeah so i mean it's it's so it's, it's it, it, i'm going to be thinking about those three areas that we outlined so i'm going to be asking the patient primarily about you know what's the cadence of onset of these symptoms what's the progression or lack of progression like 
Is it worsening? Is it improving? Just to get that overall picture. I like to sort of, in, in my mind, I sort of draw a timeline of time along the bottom and symptom badness up the top. And just what is the pattern of that person's symptoms? And and if it's, you know, getting inexorably worse over time, then, then that, that's almost never good, irrespective of the, the cause of the symptoms. Whereas, you know, the person who's getting better and worse, better and worse, but going back to normal in between, I'm, I'm maybe less worried about that. So, so I get that sort of chart of symptom progress in my mind first of all and then i want the um descriptive nature of the symptoms so is it burning and sort of altered ability to feel temperature is it you know a sort of vague numbness and is, is it painful or not painful so you know the actual description of, of of the sensation as the patient feels it and, and then the topographical distribution so so is it one arm both arms one leg both legs etc so just those key areas. But then I would want to ask associated features that I know are important in patients with sensory symptoms, but the patient may have no idea, so may not volunteer quite understandably. So I'd particularly be interested in, has their balance or coordination been affected at the same time as their sensory symptoms? You know, for instance, walking, what's the impact on walking? I'd want to know about sphincters, you know, mainly because it's, you know, if you start causing problems with the spinal cord with any disease you start to get bladder disturbance pretty early on, on to be honest with you um so once again a patient may not mention that because they may feel it's due to something else mm. altogether um associated weakness you know just check is there any weakness with this or not because it's important if, if if it is um and and you know some idea of what impact is this having in terms of function? Because generally speaking, when symptoms are associated with loss of function, I'm a little bit more worried. I'm sure the patient would understand it would be more worried if their symptoms were causing them to lose function. So just common ADLs, what, what, what can't they do now with these symptoms that they used to be able to do before the symptoms? That's just the, so the history is not going to be complicated, really. It's just those sort of four areas. And, and then the examination is going to be key because someone's presented with neurological symptoms, we can't really ascribe too much meaning to those symptoms until we've examined the patient. And I, and I always do the neuro exam in a fairly structured way. So I quickly check the cranial nerves and then move to the limbs and just working downwards and do tone power reflexes, coordination, sensation. And I pretty much do it the same way in all patients um, because then the information sort of tumbles out in an order that I can make sense of. Um, I think one thing that you see people doing, and I think it's a mistake, which is that patients presenting with purely sensory symptoms sometimes only get their sensory system examined. Um, and, and this is a misunderstanding. It's natural, I suppose, to say, well, the patient's got sensory symptoms. That's what they're worried about. I must look at their sensory symptoms predominantly when I examine them. But actually, if you take the neurologic examination as a whole, the lowest value part of the neuro exam is the sensory examination because it's entirely subjective. Yeah, yeah. It is what the patient says it is. And the patient might be saying it is such and such a thing for lots of different reasons. There's so many reasons why a sensory exam goes wrong. And the patient didn't understand. If you think about it, it's an extremely odd thing to be doing anyway, a neuro exam. It's, it's one of the weirdest examinations to do if you're a patient. And, you know, someone's got a pin and they're sticking you with it. That's odd. And of course it feels painful. But is it less painful there or more painful? <laughs> That's very difficult to know, isn't it? And then they pull out a tuning fork and it's just, it's, it, I mean, the patient's sort of cognitively trying to deal with the weirdness. <laughs> yeah. Um, as well as trying to give you good data. And and what people sometimes forget is, you know, all the high value items in the neuro exam come before sensation. So these are the tests that it don't require any sort of active participation from the from the patient other than just relaxing. So tone and reflexes. That's where the money is. Okay. And that's the same of someone presenting with sensory symptoms. In fact, in fact, it's even more important in someone presenting with sensory symptoms because probably... We're going to narrow it down to either a central problem or a peripheral problem based more or less entirely on what the reflexes do. Mm. And, and, and exactly what we find on pinprick or vibration will be significantly less important in the final analysis. Yeah, amazing. Do you mind if I ask, what's your kind of spiel for asking about sphincters? Because I think particularly for people worried about spinal cord compression or cord equina, I think the sort of research was that asking specifically is really important. Yeah, so I definitely think you do. So, so I think, you know, broad opening questions, sort of any problems with your bladder, 
is a reasonable way to introduce the topic because someone came in with a numb hand, they may not instantly be expecting you to ask them about their toilet habits. So, so any problems with their bladder, any problems passing water, whichever, you know, sort of friendly phrase you want to use. But then specifically, you know, I'd be wanting to know, so do you find yourself having to go to the toilet more often? So is it like a frequency problem in our parlance? Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself when you need to go, you really need to go, like a sort of urgency problem? And that combination of urgency and frequency you know, can suggest a spinal cord problem, a sort of upper motor neuron bladder, an irritable bladder. Patients where they might have a lower motor neuron bladder, so, you know, nerve root or, or, or nerve problem, perhaps are more likely to go into retention. This is normally an acute problem, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. So that's painful, you know, it's difficult to pass water, um, or they're not feeling as if they're properly emptying their bladder when they do go to the toilet. So those are the sort of questions I'd ask about that. It's unusual for, for, for bowel problems to be present if bladder problems aren't already present. So you normally see bladder go first and bowel um, second. So if the bladder is basically sounds okay, I don't spend ages going into the bowel habit because it's very unlikely to be uh, informative. But if they have, you know, sort of suggested there might be some bladder involvement then maybe going into the same sort of questions about bowel sort of you know so urgency frequency or problems not being able to pass um it's it gets more complicated with bowels because you know lots of people with the sort of problems that affect your spinal cord you know spondylosis getting worse maybe eventually causing compression these patients might also be taking lots of painkillers like codeine and that has a massive effect on bowel function and if you take enough you know indeed on bladder function mm. So and a, it is tricky to interpret. It's always tricky to interpret those bladder and bowel symptoms because there are so many other reasons um, that those two things go wrong. But yeah, I mean, they, they, they can be important indicators. So, so I do ask about them. And, and patients, as a general rule, do not associate that side of things with the neurological problem they think they've come to see you about. Yeah. Um, so can we put your approach to the test now with some cases? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the first example we've got here is if we see a 29-year-old patient who comes in to see us in general practice, um, she presents with ascending tingling in her left hand for the last three weeks. Um, it started to improve by the time she sees you, but it's still a little bit there. Um, how would you approach it? Okay, so I guess it's, it's a relatively young patient and it's a single extremity sensory problem. So these single extremity sensory problems are usually peripheral. It's usually nerve entrapment. That's the commonest thing. Can be nerve root. Um, this has got better on its own. Um, so I'm already sort of thinking, phew, you know, sort of this doesn't sound <laughs> awful. Whatever it was came and went. Um, so I guess I'd be specifically going in and asking about the sensory disturbance and at the same time drawing out any clear features of an entrapment neuropathy. So Carpal tunnel syndrome is exceptionally common. It's just, you know, a fact of life. And it's usually really easy to spot because it happens mostly at night. And then, you know, the patient wakes up and they shake their hand and it feels a bit better after a while. And it's, you know, it's written in all the textbooks. You can't believe it's true. And it's, it's true. That's what people complain of. Yeah. Um, so, you you know, specifically check for those things. Ulnar compression is pretty common. Um, you know, have they been sitting in a hard armed chair? because of a change in work practice or home practice, and they've just compressed their ulnar nerve because of a habitual sort of change in seating arrangements. That, that's another common problem that gives you sensory alteration in the hands that sometimes feels as if it's stretching up the arm a little bit. Not getting any joy with that, then maybe think a bit higher up, think about the root, any neck problems. So is the neck painful? Is there any ridiculous pain? Um, perhaps when you spoke to the patient about the nature of their sensory disturbance, you might get a clue because patients with single nerve problems often describe really quite focal sensory alteration because only that bit of the nerve's gone wrong. Whereas nerve root problems often feel quite diffuse. So the patient wouldn't be able to easily draw on their arm where it felt odd. It's just a sort of vague area. Um, whereas peripheral nerve, the patients obviously often with a bit of, you know, encouragement can tell you pretty precisely which half of the hand is affected. Hmm. Um, I guess it's difficult to completely put away from your mind the notion that a young woman with transient neurological symptoms lasting a few weeks and then getting better, you know, couldn't have CNS demyelination, i.e. first presentation of MS. So I would definitely want to ask about any previous episodes of neurological dysfunction lasting a few weeks. Um, and, you know, 
I would be thinking, well, it's pretty unusual for an MS relapse to just target one arm. It's quite difficult to pick off a bit of the nervous system to do that. So I'd want to be very clear that this wasn't just the arm that was most bothering her. And in fact, she'd neglected to tell me about the side of the face that was also a bit numb because face and arm go together in central nervous system sort of terms. Once again, asking about sphincteric disturbance because that's a clue to central nervous system damage. Thinking about balance because if her spinal cord is inflamed, and predominantly giving her jip in one arm, it might also be sufficiently inflamed to knock off her balance. Um, and, and then ultimately, the examination is going to be quite helpful here. It could be normal because she's gone back to normal. She feels okay now, more or less. Um, but you could get um, some clues with sort of provocation tests for carpal tunnel syndrome, for instance, that might be useful. And, and clearly, any you know upper motor neuron findings in that young woman who's had a three-week spell of sensory disturbance would, would would then make you think, okay, well, maybe that, 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 that could have been an episode of CNS inflammation. It's possible. There's no other reason why she should have upper motor neuron signs. Um, she's the sort of person who I, you know, when I'm doing my quick cranial nerve screen, be really keen to flash a light in the eye, flash a light in the other eye, make sure the pupils constrict, and then flash the light from one eye to the other and make sure they're equally reactive. Because these are the sorts of patients that have had previous subclinical optic neuropathy, optic neuritis, never realised it. And all that's left now is just that sort of, you know, afferent pupillary defect or, or, or relative afferent pupillary defect. And, you know, a young person with that three-week spell of neurological symptoms, if you find an RAPD, you've more or less made the diagnosis of MS. I mean, they're going to need to go through the process and be referred and be investigated. But actually, there's not much else that's going to account for that combination of problems and signs, I guess. Which is, you know, once again, that structured approach. You wouldn't automatically think it. You wouldn't automatically remember that in this patient, you should be thinking about an optic neuropathy. But if every patient gets the same screen and neuro exam, start at the top, go down to the bottom, you're not going to miss anything too drastic. And then if we move on to our next patient, um, who we see, it's a very neurological heavy day in general practice today. <laughs> um, we've got an 80 year old man and he comes in, he's got a funny sensation in both hands is how he describes it. Um, he struggles when he's trying to do up his buttons, he's getting really clumsy uh, and they just feel a bit numb. Uh, again, can you talk us through how you're approaching this case? Yeah, so when anyone comes in with that history, it's really difficult not to jump, or I find it very difficult not to jump to an immediate conclusion because that sort of you know elderly person coming in with numb, clumsy hands, it sounds like what we refer to as myelopathic hands. That's what it sounds like. So so sort of high or mid-level cervical myelopathy or myeloradiculopathy you know, produces this problem. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, cervical cord. But that, I wouldn't be able to stop myself thinking that if someone came in and, 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 and um, complained of that. So I guess, you know, on the topic of, you know, spinal cord dysfunction, he's coming with his numb and clumsy hands. If he's been progressively developing canal stenosis and gradually sort of pinching off his, his spinal cord and just compressing it very slowly, which is, which is definitely what happens in, in some of these older patients, there will be other clues. So, you know, the gait will have started to go as well. And it may be that he doesn't consider it to be part of the same problem because he might think the gait is his osteoarthritis in the knees or whatever but you know if he's also had a gait deterioration over the last few months that's really helpful because it means it probably all localizes to the cervical spine once again bladder symptoms in eight-year-old men there could be lots of reasons why he's got bladder symptoms but a recent change in bladder symptoms would be of interest to me um, it certainly could be you know peripheral it's certainly relatively common for an older person to maybe spend a bit more time sat in their armchair and develop bilateral ulnars just because of compression on the armchair arms. You see that a lot, um, and it can just be a change in you know ch change in habits for whatever reason. Um, so uh, bilateral compression at the elbows would also be um, quite high up on my list. At the end of the day, you know he's going to have complained about these symptoms. He may or may not endorse symptoms to suggest myelopathy. It's going to boil down to the examination again, and you know if he's got gutted hands and weak fingers bilateral ulnars if he's got brisk reflexes um, all the way down maybe his planters go up then he's got a myelopathy it can get tricky you do see this odd pattern where patients have got a gradually worsening myelopathy and it's probably you know these patients who've got bad necks canal stenosis multiple levels and as everything starts to sort of squeeze in um, the nerve roots get affected 
And you can actually get a bit of guttering in the hands as a result of that. So they do get a bit of lower motor neuron sign in the hands. Um, but it's the cord that's causing most of the problems. And they then get brisk reflexes below the pro- below the level. So you might get a picture of predominantly wasting and even dropped reflexes in the arms because of all the roots that have been pinched. But then below that, i.e. in the legs, everything's brisk. The reflexes are brisk. The tone is up. The planters are up. Oh. And that is a classic myeloradiculopathy pattern especially common in older people with multi-level uh, spondylosis causing cervical sort of canal stenosis. And right. It's really common. I think that's probably the, one of the commonest things I see in clinic in, in, in older people presenting either with gait failure or with bilateral upper limb hand symptoms, that combination. It's tricky because it's not going to be that easy to treat that. In an 80-year-old man, you're going to scan him. It's going to have lots of discs everywhere. He probably won't be a great candidate for surgery, but it will tell you what's wrong with him. Yeah. That just makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, so next up, um, we're going for the middle. We've got a 40-year-old man who's come in um, and he has about six weeks of a sensation of pins and needles in both of his feet um, and then two weeks of his left arm tingling and a week of his right arm starting to tingle. Um, he doesn't have any weakness. There's no cranial nerve dysfunction and there's no bladder or bowel dysfunction whenever you ask him. So what would you be thinking here? So, I mean, the first thing that I think about is that that's quite an odd history. Um, and, and certainly potentially a bit worrying for something significant, I think. Um, so, you know, it's been going on quite a while, six weeks. It's getting worse, but also it's it's changing and progressing. Feels like something's up here with this person. Um, so I wouldn't be too sure what's going on. Certainly, you know, if it was cord, if it was all cord causing this, you would have expected other symptoms. And he's explained he doesn't have any of those other sort of myelopathic features, but I'd still be a bit worried about that. Um, and it, it could be peripheral. It could, it could be, you know, multiple peripheral nerves. Certainly possible. Could be multiple nerve roots, but, you know, no pain, no ridiculous symptoms. It sounds a bit odd for that. So so this is going to be one where I'm going to just let those symptoms tumble out. I'm going to be at the end of the history going, don't really know what that is, actually, but don't like the sound of it. And I'm going to fall back on examination for this chap. I'm, I'm going to heavily rely on examination for this because I know from that history, I don't know what's wrong with him. <laughs> Um, but I know I'm a bit worried. Um, so, so the examination will be critical here. So, you know, he's either going to have lots of brisk reflexes and it is all myelopathy and he's just for some reason not developed very much sphincteric disturbance and weakness, or he's going to have dropped loads of reflexes and he's going to have areflexia or patchy areflexia. Um, in which case, you know, that, that's a worrying story. If he's developed a, a, a nerve problem, a neuropathic sensory problem over six weeks, spreading to affect both legs, one upper limb, then the other upper limb, I'd be thinking about, you know, a sort of subacute inflammatory neuropathy, like sort of CIDP, the sort of chronic Guillain-Barre-like nerve problem. It's a bit too long for Guillain-Barre itself, but, but it's certainly a very significant sounding history, that. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those ones you haven't been given many... Uh, sort of clear pointers from the history so you're going to fall back on your examination there and once again I think the reflex is going to probably point you in the right direction central or peripheral but it does sound like a history where something's definitely up that one brilliant thank you um and then I think by the next patient your heart's probably sinking because you're just thinking oh my goodness another one unless you've listened to this episode obviously and you know exactly <laughs> how to deal with peripheral sensation <laughs> um but it's a 67 year old man who's come in and he's got a burning feeling um in both of his feet um, and you know from his past medical history that he does have high cholesterol which he takes a statin for he has type 2 diabetes he does drink alcohol to excess and he um, is on thyroxine for hypothyroid where are we going with this one <laughs> Yeah, so, so, so burning is a is a interesting symptom. Not that many people complain of burning, and I think it's quite a helpful symptom when they do. So, so it strongly suggests that someone's got a small fibre problem. Um, so I'd be starting to think about well, what other questions could I ask that make me even more sure it's a small fibre problem? So, so the presence of burning is helpful. I'd want to know can he still perceive temperature normally? So, so when he puts his foot in the bath, can he tell that the temperature is what it should be? Was he noticed that that's altered? If he's not in the habit of taking baths, does he notice a difference between going from a tiled floor to a non-tiled floor? Can he feel that there's a temperature sensation, a temperature um, a difference? Because those two things go together. Um, patients with small fibre neuropathies characteristically struggle at night time. It's unpleasant all the time, but during the day you're up and about and I guess your mind must be taken off it. Some patients can't take their mind off it and they struggle with shoes and socks even in the daytime. But at night time, when there's not much else to occupy your mind, it becomes very sore and the bedclothes lying on your feet becomes intolerable. 
So most of these patients stick their feet out of the bedclothes because of the burning sensation. A bit like gout. A little bit like that. Yeah. This is, yeah, a generalised feeling, often the soles of the feet. Okay. Rather than focused around a toe, um, it would obviously typically be sort of red and swollen. So, so that soles of the feet, particularly common. You can get it on the palms of the hands as well sometimes, um, but, but, the, but the soles of the feet is, 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 is characteristic. So I'll be thinking about that. And obviously he has risk factors for a small fibre neuropathy. So alcohol excess is maybe the biggest risk factor for small fibre neuropathy. It doesn't have to be that. You can get it as a primary autoimmune dis- disease. You can get it as a paraneoplastic disease. So, so small fibre neuropathy is always worth identifying. Um, because it's relatively uncommon in the grand scheme of things, remembering that most peripheral neuropathies happen in people with fairly obvious reasons like diabetes. So, so uh, small fibre neuropathy, I think, is always worth looking into. Um, examining him, conversely to the last patient, might be quite disappointing. So the last patient, we didn't know what was going on from the history. We were going to rely on the exam. This patient, I think you're going to rely on the history, <laughs> actually. So you're going to rely on the risk factor identification and that classical description of a small fibre neuropathy and then how quickly or slowly it came on is going to make you less or more worried. So someone with alcohol dependency will develop this gradually over years. Somebody who's got an autoimmune or apparently a plastic cause for their small fibre neuropathy, it will come on over weeks or months. Right, yeah. But, but on examination, this man could be almost normal. So he might, if you did sort of coarse sensory testing, you might not pick much up. If you used a pin you know, on those neurotips, you'd probably notice that he felt it differently in his feet to elsewhere. But he may not definitely say, oh, it's less. It may conversely feel too sharp to him. Right. But it's different. And, you know, and how subjective is that? You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but that, that might be all you find in actual fact, because his reflexes could be normal. They probably won't be, but, but, but they could be. If someone's got a pure small fibre neuropathy, they'll have normal reflexes. And that's because when you tap someone's reflex, what you're doing is by stretching the tendon, you activate the large fibres that innervate that tendon and carry joint position sense. And those signals go back to the spinal cord. There's a bit of jiggery-pokery. And then the motor signal comes out, which contracts the muscle. And that's the reflex you can see. But that's large fibre modality. Those are the large, rapidly conducting fibres that do joint position. The very small pain fibres have no real in influence on that process. So a pure small fibre neuropathy will often have normal reflexes, which is a bit confusing because, you know, we do rely on absence or depressed reflexes to help us help us be more sure someone's got a peripheral nerve problem. So, so it's a potential sort of pitfall that actually, you know, they, they seem normal on examination, so there can't be anything wrong with them. But small fibre neuropathy is one of those cases where actually, you know, they can be pretty badly affected by their disease. Um, and it could have a serious underlying cause, in fairness. Um, and yet, when you examine them, not much to find. So it's definitely a pitfall, that one. If you do find a small fibre neuropathy, I guess we could have asked about management for any of these, but I'm just thinking about those acute ones, the paraneoplastic or potential paraneoplastic or acute onset. So sure. So I mean, so I think small fibre neuropathy is sufficiently unusual, if you like. I mean, it would, it would, gen- it would, it would be a justifiable referral to secondary mm-hmm. care, for sure, I think. And... Certainly in somebody who you're relatively confident it was alcohol-related. And when I say alcohol-related, it's really always a combination of alcohol toxicity and nutritional deficiency. That's normally what's causing the mischief here. So, so in that patient, you could justifiably try and do the lifestyle modification and the dietary supplementation. You know, somebody who's got it, had, had, it for years, had it for years. You know, it can be difficult to control these symptoms and, and it might be useful to get someone's input just with respect to what medications could be added in to try and help the patient and lots of these patients are extremely refractory to the standard drugs we use like amitriptyline pregabalin gabapentin and they often end up using you know pretty atypical things like topical treatments capsaicin patches all that sort of thing this is what we often end up using for bad small fiber neuropathy so so it can be a tricky management problem and, and all the alcohol reduction and nutritional supplementation is designed to stop it getting worse at the end of the day it's not going to fix it um if if this has come on subacutely then then it, it should be referred because it's it's, it's a, a, a sort of subacute small fiber neuropathy is, is is a worry that's good to know and, and we would you know investigate them try and prove the small fiber neuropathy which in itself is a nightmare because when you do nerve conduction studies they're normal because the nerve conduction studies test large fibres, like most of our examination. So they have to go for sort of potentially specialised tests, which is tricky to organise sometimes. 
Um, and then you've got to go looking for an underlying disease. These are the sorts of patients often end up having, you know, a CT, thorax, abdo, pelvis, or even a PET scan if you're sufficiently worried about them. It, it is one of those situations where it has to all be sorted, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. And then once that's done, you could be left with quite a difficult management problem. If you were to find an autoimmune disease, if you were to find a tumour that could be removed, then actually that could result in an improvement in the small fibre neuropathy. Hmm. So another case we have, we're going on our home visit now. Um, this is a 56-year-old patient, of a 56-year-old man who has difficulty passing urine. Uh, so several other members of your primary care team over the last six months have visited him at home as well. He's been getting worsening back pain. His back pain has been present for two years. It's getting worse. It's bilateral, lower back, and it radiates to both buttocks and down to his calves. On the home visit, when we see him, he reports altered sensation around his anus. Okay, so, I mean, it's automatically, once again, a slightly worrying sort of set of symptoms, not so much the chronic back pain, but that probably sets the scene for what sounds like somebody's chronic lumbar spondylosis just getting worse and worse and worse and potentially causing lumbar canal stenosis and, and you know, maybe even a degree of quadriquina compression. That, that could be what's in evolution here. And it's obviously not an acute quadriquina, like a sort of sudden prolapse disc, but it sounds like it's pretty aggressive lumbar canal stenosis. That, that's what it sounds like. Um, so, I mean, that's what the history is telling us. I guess examination, you'd want to see some objective evidence that the lumbar nerve roots are affected. And, and the typical pattern would be, you know, asymmetric lower motor neuron signs, a bit like what we talked about earlier. So, so these... Um, lumbar canal stenosis are, are not, not often completely symmetrical. So they'll have a reduction or a loss of reflexes, often a bit worse on one side than the other. They might have a corresponding asymmetric pattern of weakness and sensory loss. So you'd normally see pretty much a full house of abnormal findings in a patient like this. And you know you can sort of map out the sensory loss. How, how high up does it go? How high up dare you go? Um, at the end of the day, the history in itself is pretty concerning for this. This is the sort of patient in whom I consider to be very little value in the in the famous PR examination. I think that is massively overvalued. So quite exactly what we're looking for when we PR a patient with that history, particularly if they've already got hard signs in, in, in the limbs, I think it's just not really adding very much. And, you know, the idea of this poor patient with compressive sort of canal stenosis, having a PR in the community, going into A&E, having another A&E officer PR, then the spinal surgeon comes down PRs. Mm. Why have we done this? It's just, it's not dignified and it's not appropriate. It's a pretty worrying history, this. Yeah. It's an urgent referral for an MRI scan, um, assuming the patient can have an MRI scan. But it's an, it sounds like an urgent referral. So our next patient is a 77-year-old gentleman um, where we've now decided to go to the out-of-hours practice. Um, he's come in to us after a fall. So he's come in with his daughter. He comes in using a stick and he's got a very wide base gait. His daughter reports that she's concerned that he's deteriorating rapidly in terms of his function with his balance and walking. And it's actually only recently that he started using the stick. Yeah, so, so this is when someone's sensory presentation doesn't sound like a sensory presentation um so, so this person says you've got, got gait failure and it's getting worse at a fairly alarming rate um so we need to work out why this person's got gait failure it's often multifactorial um in, in older individuals but there's usually something that's driving it and there is a natural tendency for people with gait failure who are on a broad base to have their problems ascribed to their cerebellum and people become obsessed by the fact that this is a cerebellar problem. And these patients have always had a CT scan of the head, which is normal, then an MRI scan of the head, which is normal, before they eventually um, maybe have a full neurological assessment. The only patients I'd be specifically worried about cerebellar ataxia are those patients with cerebellar symptoms. So, so ataxia is one of those, as in gait ataxia is one of those, but I would also expect them to have, you know, dysarthria and upper limb incoordination, maybe a tremor. If I examine them, they should have nystagmus. And if they haven't got all of any of those, all they've got is a broad-based gait, then I'd have a rethink and say, well, maybe it's not cerebellum at all. Is there anything more, more, more likely to be putting them on a broad base and making them feel unsteady? And, and, and the answer is always sensory ataxia. So, so sensory ataxia is, is you know, one of the other forms of ataxia. And, and certainly in my experience, it's, it's significantly more common than cerebellar ataxia. Um, and that's because so many different things can cause it. The 
the, the, the clue in the history is that, yes, they're unsteady, but what makes them really unsteady is closing their eyes. So as we said before, so for balance to work, you need your cerebellum to be integrating forms of sensory information. So it integrates your visual information, your vestibular information, and your peripheral sensory information. And obviously, if your cerebellum is primarily faulty, then it can't do its job and you'll just feel unsteady all the time, no matter what's happening to you. You'll just feel unsteady. And you get those other problems with nystagmus and dysarthria and all those other things and tremor. But if just one of those problems, so one of those inputs is the problem, you'll still be unsteady. So if you have a problem with your sensory inputs, it means your cerebellum is now relying essentially on visual information and vestibular information. Well, vestibular information is only helpful if you're moving. If you're staying still, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not bringing much to the party when you're standing up. So you can test this by getting someone to close their eyes. And if they close their eyes and they're feeling dramatically more unsteady, it means they were over-relying on visual information to keep them upright. It means that the missing piece of their balanced jigsaw is sensory information. Patients notice this when they're standing in the shower. So you ask them, so can you close your eyes when you're washing your hair in the shower? And they're like, well, I've stopped doing that ages ago. I sit down now on a stool in the shower. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, can you, when you're washing your face at the hand basin, can you, can you close your eyes to do that? No chance. I've put a stool in the bathroom now. The sign that we use in the clinic is Romberg's sign. So that is getting someone to close their eyes whilst they're standing still. And you watch them begin to sway. And the more you lead them, the more they sway. And it's a sort of dare then. How much will you let them sway? Not too much. You should get them to open their eyes and stop them falling over. Um, but the, but that, that's Romberg's sign. It's, it's evidence of sensory ataxia. So, so the shower is a Romberg machine. You just have to ask about it. So that's what I'll ask this chap about. I'll ask him about whether he's developing sensory ataxia symptoms. And then when I examined him, you know, I'd be looking, are there in fact any cerebellar features that I you know, didn't catch in the history? Uh, and most importantly, are there f- features of sensory loss? So a loss of vibration typically. So that's the easiest one to detect. You can do the joint position sense with the toes up and down, but it is a patchy test. People struggle to understand what you're asking them to do. And you have to lose quite a lot of joint position before it becomes apparent really at the bedside, whereas the vibration test is great. So what you do for this is you you get your tuning fork, you make sure they can feel it on their chest and they understand what it feels like. So it's the buzz, not the cold metal. And then you put it on their toe and you make sure they can feel it on their toe. And sometimes they obviously they can't, in which case you go up to their ankle. If they can't feel it there, they go up to their knee. If they can't feel it there, you go up to their hip, so their anterior superior leg spine. If they can't feel it there, then you go up to their lower costal margin. Um, and there you're back to where you started from, really. And obviously any any loss of vibration sort of above the ankle is pretty, pretty significant. So some patients it's a bit more subtle. So what you do is you put the tuning fork on and they can feel it. And you say, great, close your eyes. And then you say... When it stops, let me know. And what you do is you just, you've got your tuning fork on there, so you just run your finger gently up the tuning fork to damp it so that you can feel that it stopped vibrating. And if a patient can say, yes, it stopped at the point you stopped it, then there's nothing much wrong with their sensory system for large fibre or, or posterior column. So that's why I like that test. So it's, it's sensitive. It picks up when there's pathology there really nicely, but also when it's completely normal, you know, there isn't much of a problem with their large fibres. There isn't much of a problem with their spinal cord. That's great. Um, so we've been we've been through quite a lot of information there with um, all of the different um, cases. In a bit of an attempt to summarise the most serious features, what features on the history or examination would worry you the most, would be making you think about either an urgent or um, a really acute um, referral? So, I mean, so, so it, it's progression of symptoms, isn't it, really? So, 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 so any progressive symptoms particularly with loss of associated loss of function is a worry and if they're acutely progressive and there's a loss of function then that that's bad news that's all happened over the course of the day that sounds like they're going into hospital that day doesn't it if it's happened over the course of you know a couple of weeks then maybe that's an urgent outpatient referral if it's progressively getting worse over months and they're losing function it's probably still a referral maybe not quite so urgent i think you know the ones that worry me far less and, and actually typically are more common, are the variable, intermittent, relatively multifocal symptoms with normality in between. And when you actually see them, the examination is normal, even though they're not symptomatic at the time. I'm not so worried about that patient. That patient can often be observed, to be honest with you. On examination, it's not the sensory signs that worry me. I suppose 
they're mostly subjective sensory signs, particularly the pinprick or, or if you do it light touch, I think they're pretty unreliable, really. I do quite rate the tuning fork test. And, you know, if someone can't feel the tuning fork when you're at their hips or they can't feel the tuning fork until you, until it gets to their lower costal margin, then I am worried about that. That's one of the sensory signs I am worried about because mm-hmm. if that's, you know, both lower limbs are affected, it's gone up to their hips or their chest, they, they probably do have a spinal cord problem. So, so I am a bit worried about that patient. If they've got sensory symptoms, it's the company they keep that I'm more worried about on examination. So is it sensory symptoms in the presence of wasting and weakness, even if the patient didn't really notice it that much? Because that sounds like they've damaged a peripheral nerve. Is it sensory symptoms in the context of absent or depressed reflexes? That sounds like another peripheral nerve problem of some description. Or is it sensory symptoms in the context of brisk, abnormally brisk pathological reflexes? Because that's a central nervous system problem. So any of those sort of combinations would be sufficiently worrying. And then, you know, the urgency for referral is based pretty much entirely on how quickly or slowly those symptoms have come on, I guess. Great. Thank you. Um, now the, the next question we have is about um, the medically unexplained symptoms, but are you happy that we chatted a little bit about that at the beginning or did you have more that you wanted to say? Yeah, I mean, I think so functional neurological disorder presenting with sensory symptoms is common. We talked about hemisensory syndrome. It's definitely the classical one. But there are lots of variations on this. It, 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 I think it's a difficult subject area. I think that it's yeah, going to be hard to maybe do it too much more justice in, 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 in the time um, allowed. And it's also difficult to, to, to take sensory symptoms in isolation if we're talking about FND. There's, there's so many other clues outside the sensory sort of world that, that are going to help you with that diagnosis, I guess. Perfect, that's grand. Just wanted to check. So um, thinking about still doing some of our consultations remotely, would it ever be appropriate or safe to manage some of these patients over the phone? Some of these presentations... The examination has been quite key, um, but can you think of any times where remote consulting would be appropriate? So I think, I mean, so remote consulting is, is is particularly useful for patients with an established diagnosis of a chronic disease, which you're monitoring. And that, that's true of patients whose chronic disease predominantly manifests with sensory problems, such as, you know, long-term peripheral neuropathy. You can actually, I've got lots of patients with long-term peripheral neuropathy that I now manage largely remotely because it's quite easy to do that. It's difficult to make a diagnosis of a new sensory symptom without an examination. That That's the bottom line, I think. I think that, you know, peak pandemic, were we doing it or trying to do it? Yes, we were trying to do it. And people were doing some weird things. They were recommending that, you know, patients get stuff out of their fridge that's cold and can they feel the cold stuff on their leg? I mean, I you know, it was frontier medicine really, mm-hmm. wasn't it? I mean, I don't think I recommend it going forward. As with anything in neurology, a, a lot of the diagnoses are made on history um, but without the examination, you're never as confident as you really should be about your diagnosis. So certainly new sensory problems, um, I think you're going to generally need to examine. No, that's, that's sensible. And you mentioned before about the lovely resource for neurosymptoms.org, that one. Any other recommendations for clinicians in primary care who are looking for a bit more information on the topic? Yeah, it's difficult. I don't think it's a topic that's, that's sort of written about that much, mm. sort of patients who present with sensory symptoms, because it's not really a disease. People tend to write book chapters and articles about diseases, but that's not necessarily a massive fan of that, because that's not what patients come with, by and large, they come with, with symptoms. And as we've seen, we've just done a few examples, and, and you can see how many different conditions you know could, in principle, be causing sensory presentation. So as I'm, I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of anything that's, that's particularly helpful. I, a, a really good resource that I can strongly recommend for this is Amazon. And if you go onto Amazon and, and Google 128 hertz tuning fork, <laughs> you can get yourself a tuning fork for less than a tenner. And that is the single most useful resource you'll have for assessing patients with sensory symptoms. Assuming that you've already got a tendon hammer, and I would obviously assume that. Assuming you've already got a tendon hammer, then the only extra thing you need is a tuning fork. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so then um, coming to our final question, uh, what uh, would you say are your main uh, take-home points that you want listeners to remember from uh, this chat today? I mean, I, I think it's patients presenting with sensory symptoms. It, it, it's a pattern recognition game. And it's, 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 it's the pattern of their sensory disturbance, which tells you which bit of the nervous system is likely to have gone awry, both in terms of the nature of the symptoms and their distribution. And then like all neurological symptoms, you know, what type of disease is it? 
that depends on the onset and the cadence and the worsening. So it's just patterns. It's no different. I think probably the key point, if I was going to distill it down to one, is that if the patient presents with sensory symptoms, don't just examine their sensory system because you will definitely come a cropper. You will find somebody with so-called glove and stocking sensory loss. You'll find that pattern because that's what you're looking for and you'll ascribe it to peripheral neuropathy and you'll miss the fact they were developing core compression because they've got brisk reflexes mm-hmm. and not going planters. You know, the neuro exam is a process and some of the elements are high value and some of them are relatively low value. And, and the, the sensory bit is generally a bit low value. Yeah, fabulous. And get a tuning fork. <laughs> amazing oh thank you so much that was absolutely brilliant Matt thank you no problems thanks Um, yeah it was was really lovely to chat to um, Matt again there today um, and hear all about his approach to altered peripheral sensation and what were your takeaway points Sarah yeah, so um, I took away lots from this. Obviously, it was absolutely lovely to have Dr. Matt Jones back because um, there was a fair amount of pressure for him. Um, we got a lot of good feedback from the headaches episode and we found it incredibly useful. So the pressure was on, but he didn't disappoint. <laughs> um, so I, I think just thinking first about his structure was so helpful. I'd not really had a framework Um, to really think about this and it can be so confusing when you see somebody and they're presenting with a set of seemingly disparate symptoms Um, and then actually if you can think okay um, so his structure just going back to it was sensory modalities think about that first like um, what type of sensation problem are they complaining of is it tingling is it numbness is it light touch Um, is it pain and temperature so that was really useful. And then thinking topographically, so whereabouts is the problem and then the speed of onset as well. So yeah, that that framework was just so useful to, to often what can be a very difficult and anxiety provoking type of presentation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, I've written down really big and I think I was really, really glad when you asked about um, myelopathy, myelopathy versus radiculopathy mm-hmm. um, because it, like, you always hear the terms and I think you assume that you understand but actually when he went through it and then was using the terms later on it made so much more sense to me um, so yeah I'm really glad you asked that and that was a massive learning point for me um, and then I also liked um, kind of just the uh, the way in which he talked about um, function Mm. Um, and I think this is we covered this before with um, the the headache one, um, but just like what's the impact on function is quite important um, and can give you quite a big, big picture uh, in terms of like the, the progression and how important it is to the patient. Yeah, I I really was so happy to ask him about how he asks the question uh, about bladder and bowel control, and then um, yeah, his additional questions, the way that that. Um, that he presented that sort of balance sphincter's weakness and the impact and that yeah and then the, the, the in exam the high yield things yeah. obviously <laughs> the, the tuning, tuning fork, fork. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah tone and reflexes as well just how important they are and especially in comparison to the sort of lo- lower yield things such as light touch being not yes. very useful and particularly the fact that um he was right that the sensory part of the neurological exam is all subjective um mm. Whereas the the other bits you can actually kind of try and objectively test. Um, so yeah, just the importance of um, even when it's a sensory presentation to do a full neurological screen. Because actually when we went through all of those different presentations, you could see how important the examination was in each of those with being able to determine what actually the cause might be. Yeah, absolutely. The myelopathic hands um, that actually, if you think about it in terms of a spinal cord, that actually testing for upper motor neuron sounds like brisk reflexes um, and looking at their gates and potentially, you know, and asking about bladder as well. Um, Yeah, um, it was really interesting, actually. It was a much more systematic approach. Yeah, definitely. And I guess we did touch a little bit on FND and MAP was probably right that it would take a whole episode alone um, to do functional neurological disorders justice. Um, But I guess it was useful to remember that, for example, anxiety symptoms can present physically, often a bit strange, not quite fit in a pattern. Um, And so if the symptoms are intermittent and not progressive, to perhaps have anxiety as one of the differentials or FND as one of the differentials that you work through. Um, And we will link to the website that Matt mentioned in the episode description. Uh, but yeah, just overall a lovely chat with Matt and lots of golden bits of information. Mm. 
Yeah, so um, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do through all the usual channels. Um, And if you're enjoying the episodes, please share it with a friend or rate us on iTunes. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.